0: The text for this morning's message is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Take heed that you are not consumed by one another. One of the most jarring texts in the Bible that I know of is a sentence that goes like this. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The reason it jars us is because Jesus said Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend. And he taught us that one of the clear ways that you love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who persecute you is by freely giving to those who ask without any fretting about whether they're going to pay back or not. And yet Paul says you can give away all you have And you can give your body to be burned and have it amount to a moral zero. You can make the final sacrifice and be lost forever. Which means, among other things, that the Christian right and the Christian left, right, left, as they call us to activity in the political realm, need to be exposed to a radical biblical critique. The right summons us to work for the rights of the unborn, a strong defense, nuclear superiority, prayer in public schools, support for Israel, family values, balanced budgets, etc. The Christian left summons us to work for a more just distribution of the world's goods, nuclear disarmament, the end of interventionist politics in El Salvador and Nicaragua, the ERA, programs to combat poverty and unemployment, and so on. The Christian right and the Christian left are summoning us to action, and rightly so, because if there's one thing Jesus cannot be criticized for, it is indifference to the needs around him in the world and the plight of people. But there is a radical biblical critique needed for both the right hand and the left hand, and they must not forget it, and it is this. If I give away all I have, and if I give my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Or to put it very bluntly, you can go to hell fighting for poverty programs, and you can go to hell fighting for prayer amendments. Because love can never be equated with deeds. It always involves the condition of the heart of the doer. If we want to bring the message of the Bible to bear upon the problems of the world around us, we need to realize that the Bible is much more radical than sojourners, and much more radical than the moral majority. To both, it says, though you give away your body to be burned in the service of your agenda, if you do not have love, you gain nothing. Love can never be equated with anybody's agenda. Because love has to come from a certain kind of heart. We might be impressed when a man gives a million dollars to build a hospital in Bangladesh. But God looks on the heart and queries the secret motives of the soul. And it may or it may not be love. Christianity is not primarily an agenda for political activity. It is a power that radically changes the human heart. Last week, we looked at Galatians 5, verse 6. The heart that is acceptable to God, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, does not depend on works, whether left-wing uncircumcision or right-wing circumcision but only the heart that is so completely reliant on God that it works through love. Faith working through love. Love is an essential part in the process of salvation. It is not optional. Nobody in this room can say, I'm saved by faith, whether I love or not. Because the only faith which saves is the faith which works through love. According to Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. Faith gives rise inevitably to love. And love bears witness to saving faith. Now today's text, beginning at verse 13, picks up the theme of love. The second time that it's mentioned in this book and carries it further and turns it into a command. In fact this is the only this is only the second command in five chapters that we've run into. Someone may ask when it says through love be servants of one another why should Paul have to command love if as i say love is the inevitable outgrowth Faith, Indeed, it's the fruit of the Spirit. So why should Paul command me to produce it? And that's a good question. And the answer, I think, is that even though God is sovereign over the church and he, in fact, works through faith to produce faith, to produce love, so that we can call it a fruit on the tree, of our lives produced by the Spirit. Nevertheless, there is nothing contradictory about the fact that God should fertilize the ground with commands, as it were, should use commands as part of the means by which the heart is transformed, incited, kindled, to be the kind of heart that produces love. At least I don't find it to be contradictory that love should be the work of God in our lives and yet part of the way God produces it is by the means of exhortations and commands. In my own experience, in fact, in my meditation on the Bible, I find that meditation on the commands of the Scripture, like the Sermon on the Mount, say, or this chapter, does something to my heart. It doesn't just make me feel the weight of obligation, it sort of works on me. Sort of changes me, especially when I attend to the the uh, argumentation in the text around this commandment. What came just before? What comes just after? How is the commandment embedded in grace? When I see it all, my heart is deeply moved often. And I am shaped and molded by the Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit to one what it commands. And so my prayer as we look at this text is that that'll be your experience too. And I think it would be appropriate if we just stopped and asked God to do that. Let's pray. Father, before we trace these three verses through, we want to confess our deep dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I feel so conscious, especially this morning after having preached on love, Hearing one of the members of our church just chewing out another person made me feel like my life was in vain. And yet I know, Father, that the word will not break through unless your Holy Spirit does a mighty work. There'll just be a lot of talk, a lot of insight, a lot of clever thoughts unless Almighty God is at work in the hearts of these people and in me. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll take insights and turn them into incentives, that you will take truth and turn it into power and make us new. Fill us, O oh God, with the Holy Spirit that we might bear the fruit of love in freedom. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The logic of these verses is very simple. Paul begins in verse thirteen with laying the foundation of the Christian life. You were called to freedom, brothers. The call of God is the foundation of the Christian life. He goes to work. He does the calling. And that into which he has called us is freedom. Now, on that foundation, he draws out two imperatives. One negative, one positive. Negatively, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Positively, Instead, through love, serve one another. Then, as an inducement, and incentive to take that way of life really seriously, he gives a positive and a negative support in verses 14 and 15. Positively, he says, live like that because the whole law is fulfilled in one word, namely, love your neighbor as yourself. You fill the law, fulfill the law when you love. And negatively, he says, the, the alternative is terrible. If you bite and devour one another, take heed. You're going to consume each other. So the, the, the flow of the text, I think, is very plain, very simple. Let's begin with this central point in verse 13. Through love, be servants of one another. Listen to what happens when you take that command and Put it right next to the first phrase of verse 13. It says, uh, you were called to freedom. Through love, serve one another. You were called to freedom from servitude. Now subject yourself to servitude. Strange way to proceed. And the question that raises for me is, is this. Why is it that love, which serves the needs of other people, is the only way that Christian freedom can express itself? I think it is. Or to put the question a different way, why is it that the, the, the summons to love and the summons to freedom are the same thing? As I think they are, and I'll try to show you. Take this middle phrase in verse 13. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I think what Paul means when he says that is if you try to use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, you lose your freedom. He's not saying works of the flesh and the fruit of love are two optional ways of living in freedom. You might get that impression if you read the verse without any sense for the flow in the book. You can say, well, don't use your freedom for this. Use it for this. You can live in freedom two different ways. You can live by works of the flesh. You can live by the fruit of the spirit. No, he's saying, if you try to use your freedom in order to live out the flesh, you, as verse one says, subject yourself again to slavery. When you walk according to the flesh, you're a slave. When you walk by the spirit or when you live in love, you're free. And my question is, why? Why is it that freedom always produces love? Here's my answer. Because love is motivated by the joy of sharing our fullness, whereas the works of the flesh are motivated by a desire to fill our emptiness. I'm going to say that again because therein lies a very important key. Love is motivated by the joy of sharing our fullness. The works of the flesh are motivated by a desire to fill an emptiness. Focus with me on that word flesh for just a minute. In Galatians, the word flesh, which we read here in verse 13... Does not mean the physical part of man's nature. Doesn't mean body, skin. Here's my definition from Galatians of flesh. Flesh is man's ego which feels a deep emptiness and uses the powers at its disposal to fill that emptiness. The flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness and uses the resources within its disposal to fill that emptiness. If it's a religious ego, it will use the law. And if it is an irreligious ego, it will use booze or drugs or the high life or the fast life or whatever else. Seems like it will fill up the void. One thing is sure, however, the flesh is not free. The flesh is enslaved to one futile desire after another in its effort to fill the emptiness that only Jesus can fill. So it's in bondage to all those frustrated efforts. So when Paul says in verse 13... Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He means don't surrender the freedom that you have in the all satisfying Christ just to go after desires that are going to leave you empty and enslaved in the end. Whether it's physical pleasures or whether it's self-exaltation. So the works of the flesh are motivated by. A desire to fill an emptiness. But love is very, very different. Love is motivated by the joy of sharing fullness. Love does not seek its own, Paul said, First Corinthians 13. Why? It's already got all it needs. Love does not manipulate and abuse. It does not seek its own. Therefore, when we love, we are not enslaved to things or to people to use them to fill an emptiness within us. Love is the overflow of a fullness that God gives. And therefore, love is the only behavior that freedom will produce. When God frees you from guilt, fear, greed and fills you with the all-satisfying presence of himself, there's only one motive left. The joy of sharing your fullness or love. When God fills the emptiness of our heart with forgiveness and help and guidance and hope for the future, he frees us from the bondage to accumulate things and manipulate people in an effort to fill a void because it's not there anymore. People in this church and people outside this church who devote large hunks of their life to surrounding themselves with worldly comforts are simply bearing eloquent witness to the fact that God has not filled the void in their lives. Right? That's why you crave what you crave. Want to be rich, want to have more and more, want prestige and fame and power? God is not your portion. And everybody knows it if you don't. And we bring great disrepute upon the all sufficiency of our Savior when we live like the world does, with the same desires, the same goals, for the same things. When God is our portion, we are truly free and we will serve one another through love. Freedom flows forth from the fullness that God gives or freedom flows forth in love just as surely as a, a mountain spring produces a stream that flows down and meets the needs of the valley below, whereas The works of the flesh are like a vacuum cleaner, just sucks and sucks and sucks. And when it feels like it's about full, somebody throws the bag away. The book of Galatians is written to show us how to become a mountain spring instead of a vacuum cleaner. And I know most of you have discovered that the most fulfilling and joyful Way to live is to just be drawing up the resources of God's grace day by day, and then feeding them out to people all day long. Then you come to the end of a day, and even if it's cost you something, there's been inconvenience, maybe pain, maybe rejection because of your love and your effort to share the most valuable things, you'll go to bed and sleep like a baby because you'll feel clean. Good, wholesome, pure, right. This is why I'm on the earth. But if you spend your day finagling how to accumulate more things, feeling grumpy that you don't have what so-and-so has, and using people to try to get into their good graces, you feel rotten at the end of the day, even if there was physical pleasure and prestige all day long at work. The way to live. Is to be a mountain spring and not a vacuum cleaner. Verses 14 and 15 are written to give us added incentives to get on with this kind of life. Verse 14 gives a positive incentive. It says, you live that way. You fulfill the whole law. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In spite of all the negative things Paul has said about works of the law in this book. We must not get the impression that it is a matter of indifference whether or not we fulfill the law by our behavior. It is not a matter of indifference. It is a matter of essentiality. We must fulfill the law. And the good news is that the law can be fulfilled in one word. Love, which is not a work, but is the overflow of a life of grace. I find it tremendously comforting and an encouragement to get on with my Old Testament Bible reading to know that there was one point that the Old Testament had. Be a loving person. It's all. Be a loving person. Of course, it assumes, like Paul does here, that love is the overflow of something else, namely The supply of God by his grace into our lives simplifies interpretation very much, doesn't it? To be able to say, this fat book of 39 volumes had one point. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what self-love means in this verse. The most common confusion, the most common mistake, is that self-love is construed to be a commandment. It isn't a commandment. And the other mistake is that self-love is construed to be self-esteem. And it isn't self-esteem. It is self-interest. Paul is not saying, love yourself. He is assuming you love yourself. And he is not saying, I assume you all have self-esteem. He's saying, I assume you all love happiness. That you all are interested in your own welfare. The reason we know that that's what Paul means is because of the way he uses the passage when he applies it to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, where it says husbands love should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, ever. You were born with self-love. And you will die with self-love. And it is good. Because all it means is you have a deep, insatiable desire to be happy. And God uses that. Self-love in this passage means a strong interest in your health, safety, and happiness. No, you've got it. You clothe yourselves well. You feed your stomachs well. You go to the doctor when you feel sick. You take care of yourself pretty good. Everybody in this room loves himself without exception. Nobody here is without the desire to be happy. And all Jesus and Moses and Paul do, therefore, is tap in to the root of our lives. The hunger for happiness. And say, just like you want to be happy, make that the measuring rod by which you want everybody else to be happy. And with that, they produce the most radical command imaginable. That is the hardest command in the Bible, I think. It means, want to feed the hungry. As much as you want to eat when you're hungry. It means want to find your neighbor a job. With as much desire as you want to find a job when you're out of work. Or with as much zeal as you are glad that you have a job. It means want to help your fellow student get A's. With as much desire as you want to have an A on this exam. It means want to help a person stalled on the freeway at 40 below zero with as much gladness that you are not stalled on the freeway. It means want to give a poor softball player a chance to play with as much desire as you have to play the whole game. It means... Want to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you are glad that you know him. It means use all the creativity, energy, perseverance to do good things for others that you use on yourself every day without exception. Make your inborn already existing self-love the measure of your love for other people and you will be so radically different from everybody in the world they will see you and repent. It is a high and hard calling. Care about the happiness of other people as much as you care about your own. I have to repent before you that I have a hard time with that. When I get sick, oh, the fervency of my prayer. When you get sick, I pray, I wish I prayed with as much fervency as when I feel that pain in my leg, chest, head. We aren't good at this yet. What would this church look like (laughs) if uh, the person on your right and the person on your left and the person in front of you and the person behind you looked upon when this service was over and at the picnic this afternoon and actually felt in your heart without any constraint, the same zeal for them to have a good time, be healthy, grow, get what they need as you feel for your own desire for a good time. Get happy. Well, let's test ourselves this afternoon at Ham Lake, Okay. All of you have your agenda. I want to play softball. I want to play volleyball. I want to eat three hot dogs. I want to go swimming in the lake. I want to play I want to win a three-legged race. Let's see. Let's see this afternoon whether this sermon will make any difference in real life and we will have our antennas up. Where's the person who's alone? Anybody talk to that lotion over there? Yeah. There was a visitor who just hopped on the bus. Seems not to anybody have talked to him. But if I go to talk to him, then I'll leave my... But will love win at Bethlehem? What a difference it would make. If we lived like this command says to live, this place would be iridescent with the joy of God. And people would get converted. Because that is an irresistible evidence of the reality of God. Because it's so unnatural. Let's do it. Let's get on with love. Because as verse 15 says, if we don't, look what the alternative is. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. church that does not serve each other in love will perish, eat each other up. And I can't help but wonder whether or not it's a coincidence that Paul in verse 15 uses language that describes what wild animals do when they're empty, not when they're full. If you're full, you overflow in love. If you're empty, you eat your enemy. Right? And it is sweet to eat your enemy. Revenge is sweet. Raising the voice at somebody who's let you down is sweet. Satisfies a longing that you have. God ought to have already satisfied it and freed you from that compulsion. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to freedom, not to the slavery of the works of the flesh. In Jesus Christ, God offers us forgiveness, daily help and guidance, and he offers us hope for the future, even to eternity, a future that is unimaginable. It ought to take away all the emptiness that we have by nature. It's all free. Jesus purchased it. We have it by faith alone. Just reach out a hand and take it. That's all you need to do. The secret of love is freedom. And the secret of freedom is a heart that is filled with confidence in the love of God. Now let me throw an arch back to where we began. You know why you can give your body to be burned And have not love. Because you can give your body to be burned. And not be acting in freedom. You can give your body to be burned. Because there's this intense vacuum. Inside. That you will almost do anything to fill up. And maybe I could get it. By throwing myself on the grenade. And there's a. A world of a difference whether you throw yourself on the grenade because it's an overflow of a fullness that God has supplied so that he gets the glory. Or whether there's this insatiable craving, you've tried everything in life, maybe the one last sacrifice would fill the void. And it isn't love and it doesn't glorify God.